Before we open up the scriptures, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we begin to center our minds and our hearts on the word that you have revealed, the message that you have for us, we want to plead with you to speak powerfully into our lives. Some of us feel the need to have spiritual transformation. We pray that you'll grant that this morning. Some of us are blunted by the everyday grind of life. And we're pessimistic about change. And Lord, we need you to speak powerfully into our lives so that we can be hopeful, so that we can be encouraged and blessed and equipped in such a way that we can know the abundant life that Jesus has come to give us. Some of us are unconcerned about hearing from you today. Some of us just are, are numb to spiritual realities numb to the call that you have on our lives. And Father, we need you to wake us up. We need you to breathe life into our dead bones. We need you to give us a vision for a greater life, a higher life, a life that you've called us to. Lord, we need your help. And the only way that we can be helped is for your Spirit to come and minister mightily and powerfully to our minds and to our hearts that changes our will and changes our attitude and changes our whole life. And we need that and we ask you for it because otherwise, Lord, we will do nothing but read some verses and talk about some things. And so, Father, would you please, please, do a work of spiritual transformation in these moments we have together for the sake of the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Christians need Jesus as much as non-Christians need Jesus. Which is to say, you need Jesus as much as your friend who hates Jesus needs Jesus. You say, well, wait a minute. What, what, what do you mean, Ryan? You see, we can easily convince ourselves that we're good if we have checked the box that says, I believe in Jesus. If we have prayed the sinner's prayer that says, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and believe that Jesus is a Savior, and I confess that in this moment. We can easily convince ourselves that we're good if we have made a profession of faith and joined a church. And so now we can convince ourselves that it's time to move on with life, to move on with what we really want to do. Because we've taken care of that Jesus need that we have. One of my good friends who attended a revival at a large church went down front and made a profession of faith in Jesus. 
And he told me about it. He was in his early 40s when he made the profession. And he was really excited about it. And he said, Ryan, I've been saved. And he said, you know, I don't even go to the worship services anymore, but I serve on the security detail in the parking lot every service because I realize I'm saved. What my friend sadly misunderstood is that when you make a profession of faith in Jesus, your life with Jesus and your need for Jesus really just begins at that point. But this is the mentality of too many people who claim Christ. Salvation is not just checking a box or praying a prayer or making a, a profession. It is not just uh, getting a, a, you know, a get-out-of-jail-free card or a get-out-of-hell-free card, as some may call it. Salvation, listen, is being delivered from the darkness and isolation of following yourself to the light and fellowship of following Jesus for the rest of your life. That's what salvation is. Sometimes we think of salvation as merely a, a, a deliverance from punishment to something that's better. Well, it is something that's better. It's to namely Jesus Christ, to Him. And, and He is worthy of us following Him. Salvation is being rescued from a life without Christ to a life with Christ. Being rescued from a life where you follow your own heart, where you follow the heart of Jesus. And anything less than a life of following Jesus is not a saved life. The Apostle John methodically is laying out for us the worthiness of Jesus to follow Him. He tells us in chapter 20, he says, I've written these things so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ. All right? And then when believing Him, you will have life in His name. And what, what John is saying is, is you won't have a real life unless your life is believing and trusting in Jesus every single day. It's a life where you do take up your cross and follow after Jesus daily, weekly, monthly, annually, decadely. And so Jesus is worthy of our attention. He is worthy of our allegiance. He is worthy of our following Him. He is worthy of our heart. He's worthy of our mind. He's worthy of our time. He's worthy of our relationships. He's worthy of us giving ourselves to Him in our work and in our hobbies and in our leisure time. He's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. And we've sung all the reasons why He's worthy because Jesus Christ lived the life that you're supposed to live. He died the death that you absolutely deserve. He is risen from the dead to conquer the punishment of death, the punishment of hell, the punishment of sin, so that if you trust in Him, now listen, if you trust in Him, you will be able to live with Him forever because He is the true Son of Man who is promised in the Scriptures who will one day return and rule and reign in righteousness forever and ever and ever and ever. And so He's worthy. Jesus Christ is worthy of your life. And John is laying that out to us. 
In the prologue, he has said, the eternal Son of God, who is the creator and sustainer of the universe, has broken into human history and has revealed God to us. He has revealed the glory of God to us, and that glory is demonstrated by the grace in which he loves people and the truth in which he speaks to people. And then, last week, John the Baptist revealed to us the worthiness of Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what we saw in John the Baptist was a humble heart and a courageous voice because, church, John the Baptist knew exactly what I'm telling you this morning is that Jesus Christ is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy of everything that you've got and everything that you are. John the Baptist believed it. It produced a humility humility, and a courage that was unprecedented. The same thing that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in us. Now, if you're thinking about where is the text now going, John is laying out, he's setting the stage for who the person and work of Jesus is so that we can believe him and follow him and trust in him. What he's going to do now is show us that he is the Son of Man who is worthy to give your whole life to him. And so you need to see his glory, you need to follow his leadership, and then you need to call others to follow him as well. Let's read John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. That's the end of the chapter. John 1, 35 to 51 John the Apostle is laying out for us consecutive days in the early ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. John the Baptist has, has baptized Jesus. He, he has told the crowds that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at that point, nobody really did anything. Nobody actually followed him. Nobody said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm following after him now. Nothing really happened that John revealed to us. But now in verse 35, let's read what happens the next day. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. That is four o'clock. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. His first, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, 
can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What the Holy Spirit is calling us to do today is to see the glory of Jesus and to follow Jesus and then to go make other disciples of Jesus. That's what the Spirit of God is calling us to today. To see Christ, to follow Christ, and to go make other disciples of Christ. That's what He's calling us to. And so what we need to do is we need to see this play out in the lives of these first disciples of Jesus, and then we need to bring it home into our own hearts and our own lives and our own ministries. Now, normally I give you a very tight structure, a very tight outline. Uh, in this text, um, I, you don't really see kind of those three elements of what he's calling us to in chronological order, that is seeing Christ, following Christ, and making other disciples of Christ. And so if you want to think about an outline, I think you could think about it more structurally in the sense of you have the first two disciples, the third disciple, and the fourth and fifth disciple. The first two disciple, the third disciple, and the fourth and fifth disciple. And it kind of just follows through that, that way. And so why don't we just do this? Why don't we just walk through the passage right here so that we can really get a grip on what's going on and then we'll bring home this concept that we've got to see Jesus, we've got to follow Jesus, and we've got to make other disciples of Jesus. And so let's, let's look down at the passage, church, and let's walk through this thing. We see the, really the first two disciples here, starting in verse 35. John the Baptist is around, and he, he looks at Jesus. Jesus walks in their midst, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, we said last week that John doesn't fully understand all that it means to be the Lamb of God, but what we can say is that the Lamb of God means God's Lamb. This is God's appointed Lamb, and that, that language of Lamb is really full. This is the, the, the spotless, pure, stainless perfect lamb. This is the human lamb who takes away the sin of the world by being sacrificed on behalf of sinners so that when he spills his blood, no more blood needs to be spilled. When he gives his life, no other life needs to be given because he is the perfect lamb of God and he's God's lamb. And so behold him, see him. That word behold means to look, perk up, put your eyes on this lamb because he's God's chosen substitutionary sacrifice for sinners like you and me. Okay? Behold him. Look at him. And so the two disciples who are unnamed at this point hear John the Baptist say this and they follow Jesus. 
Now, let's make a couple of observations. First of all, yesterday John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. Today, what does John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God. I I just think we should make the observation that John the Baptist was persistent in declaring the person of Jesus no matter what day it was or what the response to his declaration was. He was saying it yesterday, he's saying it today, and he's trusting that at some point there's going to be a response from those who follow him to actually now transfer their allegiance from him to Jesus. And that's what the second observation we want to make is, is that the disciples of John the Baptist immediately left him to follow Jesus. And we don't see that John the Baptist was upset by that. We don't see that he was jealous about that. We don't see that somehow he had this angst in his heart saying, oh, my disciples are leaving me. What am I going to do? Why? Because John the Baptist had a humble heart and he had a courageous voice because he knew who he was and he knew that he was not the son of man, the lamb of God, the son of God, the king of Israel, the Messiah. You know, it's amazing what can happen for the kingdom of God when God's people don't have pride, when they don't have their own name or their own reputation or their own kingdom to build, but rather only have one singular ambition, the kingdom of God and the advancement of the gospel. Let's continue to walk through this thing because these two disciples, they begin to follow Jesus, like literally, physically. Jesus is walking away and they begin to follow him. It's a physical following of Jesus, and Jesus turns around and says, what are you seeking? This is an interesting interaction between Jesus and these two men. And I believe that John records this question and answer session between uh, Jesus and these two disciples because I think what he wants to do is put into his letter, into his gospel, to people that he wants to believe in Jesus, he wants us to ask the question, what are we seeking? And so I'll, I'll ask you right now, what are you seeking? What are you really looking for? What is it in life that that you're just aiming after and until you get it, you're not going to be satisfied? Because there is a sense in which that's what Jesus is asking of these two disciples. What are you really seeking? Now, when they answer, they say, well, rabbi, teacher. You know, the word rabbi actually means my great one. My great one. But it, during, over a period of years, it, it came to basically mean a Jewish religious teacher. And so they said, well, you're, you're, you're a teacher. And, and our, our leader, our discipler, John, has told us that you're the Lamb of God. And so we believe him. We're trusting in our discipler's profession about you. And so we want to know where you're going because we want to go where you're going. Where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and and you'll see. And so, I think one reason that they ask, where are you going? Because the text is about to reveal to us in a couple of verses that Andrew goes and grabs his brother immediately. So they needed to know where he was going. But this is what I want to tell you. These first two disciples are Andrew 
and John the Apostle, the one who is writing this gospel. That is an interpretive conclusion that we can draw. Number one, because he remains unnamed. And any time, as you read through the Gospel of John, where it talks about a disciple who is unnamed, John is frequently just referring to himself. And it's the same is true, I think, uh, here. And then Andrew is the brother, brother of Simon. And it is these first two who begin to follow after Jesus. And so they stayed with him, it says, the 10th hour. This is just a bit of historical information. But the Jews judged their days from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So if you just do the math, the 10th hour would be 4 o'clock. And the, the reason that John puts that in there is because it's very likely that by 4 o'clock, they had to make their decision whether they were going to go back home because there was not enough daylight for them to get back or whether they were going to stay. And Jesus' hospitality and his love for them compelled them to stay and remain with him so that Jesus could teach them and show them about who he was and compel them to follow him with their lives. And so they came and they stayed with Jesus. So you have Andrew and you have John. And they're following this Jesus. And they're doing it on their own as John the Baptist has compelled them. Verse 40. One of the two heard it was Andrew. And so he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah. We found the Christ. We found the anointed one. And these men were Jews, and so they have studied and grew up in the synagogue, and they know that there's a promise of the Messiah all the way through Moses and through the prophets, and they, everyone who is a Jew is looking for this Messiah, who's looking for this Christ, this Deliverer, the one who is going to lift them up and make them a great nation again, and they're going to be fully blessed and eternally blessed, and it's going to be glorious. They're looking for this Messiah, and Andrew tells his brother Simon, we found him. you got to come. And the thing that we want to observe here is the excitement and the immediacy of Andrew's desire to go to his brother and grab his brother and come show him Jesus. Church, there is a sense in which if you've truly been gripped by Christ, not, not grown up in a church atmosphere and kind of casually embraced the reality of the gospel, but that you have been gripped by the identity of Christ, the personhood of Christ, the, the greatness and the awesomeness of Jesus, the Lamb of God. If that's happened for you, you know what you want to do? You want to go to the people that you love the most and say, I found Him. Come with me to go see Him and experience Him because there's life in His name. But if you're one of these persons who's casually, over time, embraced a semblance of the gospel so that you are culturally acceptable in this world, then there produces in you no excitement to go call others to follow him. And so I think there's a question for us at this point is, is are we so smitten, so taken by the glory of Christ that it compels us to go to the people that we love the most in this life. It did Andrew. And he brought his brother Simon to see Jesus. And notice the interaction. Look at verse 42. Jesus looked at Simon and he says, You're Simon, 
the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Simon was an extremely common name for Jews during that time. There are at least seven different Simons in the New Testament. At least seven. And Jesus looks at him, and the only, the only time in which someone had the authority to change another person's name is if that person had an authority over that other person, and that other person was willing to accept that authority. Rabbis did change names of their followers. It was, it was common to do so. Because in this generation, a name represented the character and the quality of, a, of the person who held that name. And so this is what Jesus says. You're now Peter. You're Peter, which means rock. Rock. Now, Peter was not a formal, proper name during this time. You didn't walk around. People did ne never introduce themselves as Peter. Hey, I'm Peter. Why? Because that, it literally meant rock or rocky or stone. And so Jesus says, your name is stone. Your name is rock. And so uh, you just need to understand that when we call Peter by his name all the time, what they heard during those times is stone. Hey, my name is stone. Hey, my name is rock. Hey, pleasure to meet you. I'm rock. That's, that's, that's what it was like. Now, this is what we really want to see is that as the Gospels lay out the character and the life of Simon Peter, we see a man who is loudmouthed, rambunctious. His claims outrun his ability to follow up with those claims. He makes statements that he should never make. He makes promises that he should never make. He leads others in places they should not go. Yet Jesus in his omniscience knows all this about Simon and yet calls him Peter from the very beginning. Because Jesus knows that he's got the power to transform a guy like Simon into a man like Peter. And he looks at Simon not for who he is, but for who he can be in Christ. And for those people that we're seeking to love and to care for and to disciple and to see them come to Jesus to be followers of him, church, we would do well for us to look at them for not who they are, but for who they can be. In Christ. Because Peter, the rock, after all of those terrible things, including the denials and the cursings, stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament scriptures and the church is birthed and thousands are saved and 2,000 years later we're meeting in a building calling our allegiance to Jesus Christ because the rock stood up on the rock, Jesus Christ. Amen. So there's the, the third disciple. Let's look at the final two disciples in this text who come to Jesus. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, just a, less than a day's walk from where they were, and he found Philip. And he said to Philip, 
follow me. Now notice the difference between what had happened with the previous three disciples. In the previous three disciples, two of them voluntarily leave their allegiance to John the Baptist and follow after Jesus. And then Andrew goes and gets his brother and brings him to Jesus. It's almost like Jesus was actually somewhat passive in these first three disciples coming to Jesus. But now Jesus approaches this Philip who comes from the same town as Andrew and Peter and he commands Philip, follow me. Follow me. Stop whatever you're doing and bring your allegiance and your life and your entire body and follow after me. And so Philip does so. But Philip finds Nathanael in verse 45. And Nathanael is from a, a, a city, Cana, which is only about, if memory serves me right, four miles or so from Nazareth. Cana, which we're going to talk see next week, Cana and Nazareth are rivals, kind of like Oxford and Anniston used to be, all right? They're just rivals. And you know what? I don't know if they played any athletic events against one another, but they had some type of rivalry between the two towns. And so when, when the disciples say, listen, and Philip in particular say, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, Nathaniel has a proper amount of skepticism. He's skeptical. Like, what are you talking about? First of all, we know that the Messiah is not going to come from Nazareth. He's going to come from Bethlehem. It was revealed in the Scriptures. And so I'm not sure, he's saying to Philip, Philip, I'm not sure that, that, that you're right on this because we know that the Savior, the Messiah, is going to come from Bethlehem. First of all, and, and then second of all, Nazareth itself is just a... It's just a town. And then Joseph, I mean, yeah, he's in the line of, of the 12 tribes, and, and there, there's that. But, I mean, Nazareth, all of, this just doesn't make sense. And, and I just don't know about this. But I want you to know, church, that there is a proper amount of skepticism that Nathaniel possesses here. And so Philip does a good thing. When he asked, Nathaniel asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip simply says, come and see. Just come and see. Jesus had previously said, come and you will see. But I want us to understand something about evangelism and discipleship. Oftentimes we look at trying to win people to Christ by arguing with them, by building up logical argumentation and testifying about all the historicity of things and the reliability of texts and all of that. And, and, I, and all of that apologetically has its place. But in reality, the thing that you and I need to do as disciples of Jesus who are trying to win disciples of Jesus is to simply show people Jesus. Show Him His love. Show Him His grace. Show Him His power. Let them feel that the spirit of Christ's love that comes from inside your heart that wells up and the way that you treat them with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control demonstrates to them who Jesus is. And then when you invite them to come in to, say, a church service on a Sunday morning and these people 
who you invite to come in, behold the people who belong to Jesus, zealously singing to Him and communing with Him and communing with one another, people are beholding a unique relationship that exists between the Son of God and the people of God. And as they come and witness Jesus through the Scriptures, through the preaching, through the singing, and through the fellowship, we're doing exactly what Philip was doing for Nathaniel. Hey, you just come and see. Just come and check it out. And so that's what Philip does. And Nathanael meets Jesus. Let's look back down at the text. And Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. What is Jesus saying here? First of all, he uses this term Israelite. You guys remember in your Old Testament that You have Abraham, Isaac, and then who? Jacob. Jacob got his name because when he was coming out, um, when he was birthed, he was holding his brother's heel. And Jacob began to manifest the... his birth birth name. The, The word Jacob meant supplanter. It was used to trip people up. That that same word, Yaakov, was used to trip people up to supplant people in what they were trying to do. And that's exactly what what Jacob manifested in his life because what did Jacob do to his brother? Stole his birthright and then gained his what? His blessing. You remember that? Pretended, put on the goat's hair, went in, acted like he was his brother Esau, and so his old blind dad gives gives him the blessing to, to have everything that it was really rightfully Esau's. Jacob was a supplanter. He was a deceiver. He tripped people up. And then Jacob has an experience with with God and with the Lord, and the Lord changes Jacob's name to what? Israel. And what Jesus is saying about Nathanael is that you are a true Israelite. You're not like Jacob, a supplanter or a deceiver. You have a righteous heart. You have a right mind. You think about things rightly. In other words, you're one of a few in in first century Palestine who truly are a worshiper of Yahweh. And so he says there's no deceit in you. You're not like Jacob. And Nathaniel is blown away by this. Now before we look at verse 48, I want you to know that the fig tree was a place where rabbis were known to sit under and read the scriptures and pray and meditate on God. You read rabbinic literature, you find that out, it's clear throughout. And I don't know exactly what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. I cannot say for sure that that's exactly what he was doing. But if we read this verse, it does make sense when Jesus says, look, in verse 48, Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now if Philip, I'm sorry, if Nathaniel was under the fig tree, knowing that he's a true Israelite, 
knowing that he's a worshiper of God, that he has righteousness, that he's thinking about the things of God, that he's thinking about the kingdom of God, that he's concerned about the advancement of the kingdom of God and where it stands among his peers and in his region. Verse 49 makes sense when Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. In other words, there there is a sense in which I was meditating on the kingdom, I was meditating on the Messiah, and here you are telling me that you saw me meditating and you were miles and miles away from me. And you must be the king. You must be the one that I'm meditating on in the scriptures. Nevertheless, he makes a pronouncement that you are the Christ. That's essentially what Son of God and King of Israel means. And Jesus says in this culminating two verses, because I said, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You're going to see way greater things than these. And then he he calls us back to Jacob. Look at what verse 51 says. Truly, truly. He says, amen, amen is the Greek. It's where we get our word amen. It means true, right, yes. Jesus uses this phrase, this terminology, whenever he wants to get a, 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 a very important point across. He says, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus calls us back and he calls Nathaniel and Philip and Andrew and um, Peter and John. All these five disciples are together because that, that word you is in the plural and that verb is in the plural there. So he's got them all surrounded And this is what he says. I've already referenced Jacob earlier. No deceit. You're a true Israelite. This is what I want you to know. When Jacob was running away from Esau because he was afraid that Esau was going to kill him, Jacob finally got tired of running and he found a place to lay down. And he grabbed a rock. And he put that rock down on the ground and he laid down on the ground and he began to dream. And in that dream, the Lord revealed something to Jacob. He revealed this ladder that was attached to the ground and went all the way up into the heavens. And angels came up and down that ladder. And Jacob has this vision of the visitation of God. And he's so overwhelmed by it that he wakes up and he said, Surely God was in this place, and I did not know it. He takes that pillow, which was a rock, which is very odd to me. Um, He takes it, and he sets it up, and he makes an altar there, and he pours oil on it, and he calls this place Bethel, which means house of God. House of God. And Jesus, knowing that all those men are familiar with that story, says you need to know that there's going to be a ladder. There's There's going to be angels ascending and descending on this ladder. And I am the ladder. And I am the way in which you will experience life on earth to life in the heavens because I am the way to eternal life. 
And if you think you've seen something by me telling you I saw you under the fig tree, you're going to see me do signs and wonders that will absolutely amaze you. You will see me love people who you think are unlovable and forgive people who you think are unforgivable. And then I'm going to pour my life into yours and I'm going to disciple you. But then ultimately, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to suffer on your behalf. I'm going to die in your place. And in doing so, I'm going to rise from the dead and I'm going to build a bridge. I'm going to build a ladder from earth to heaven so that if you trust in me, you will have a way to eternal life. Just wait and see. That's what Jesus is calling his disciples to. So, church, that is the kind of the explanation of the narrative of these first five disciples coming to Jesus. And so what I want to do right now, before we just bring it home with, with these three applications, I want us to make collectively um, a couple of observations about this passage. So if you've still got your Bibles open, just take a look at your Bible. I want you to look at the repetition of the words looking and seeing. Look at the repetition of the words looking and seeing and beholding. Look at verse 36. Looked. 36. Behold. 38. Saw. 38. Seeking. 39. See. 39. Saw. 42. Looked. 43. See. 47. Saw. 47. Behold. 48, saw, 50, saw, 50, see, 51, see, look, behold, see, saw, look, 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 see, saw. I think John is trying to show us that the first step in becoming a disciple of Jesus is seeing Jesus for who He is. Let's make a second observation. Let's look at this idea of following and coming. Look at verse 37. Followed. 38, come. 39, came. 40, followed. 43, follow. 46, come. 47, coming. What, what he's now saying is, is once you see and, and, and you behold who Jesus is and His worth, then there is a next step. What is the step that comes after seeing the glory of Christ? Yes, following Him. Like the idea that you can see Christ, that you can hear of His glory, that you can sing songs and, and, and participate in prayers and, and listen to sermons and then walk out and live the life that you want to live where you're following yourself and not following Christ and to think that somehow you're a disciple of Jesus, you, you're just blowing smoke. You're believing a lie. Because if you see the glory of Christ, there is a natural progression of following after Him with all that you are and all that you have. That's what John is wanting to show us. And then, we won't have to walk through this again, but the other repetition that we see is that John the Baptist commends Andrew and Peter to be followers of Jesus. Andrew commends Peter to be a follower of Jesus. Philip commends Nathaniel to be a follower of Jesus. And Jesus commends all five of those men to be followers of Jesus. That's why, church, I say that the impetus, the force behind this 
text for you and I is to see Christ, follow Christ, and go make disciples of Christ. All right. So let's just think about it for a moment. See Christ. John, in this first chapter, has declared, first of all, that Jesus, if you can remember verses 1 through 5, has said that Jesus is the what? The Word. He's the Word. Which means He is the self-expression of God. That when you hear Jesus, you're hearing God. And when you see Jesus, you're seeing God. And when you look at the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, then what you're seeing is the heart of God and the ambition of God and the plan of God unfold. He's the Word. He's the expression of God. And then John the Baptist has declared Jesus to be who? The Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the lamb that you've got to put your trust in. He's got to to be the lamb that you find your righteousness in and your life in. And you can't trust yourself. You've got to trust him. And you can't follow your heart. You've got to follow his heart because he truly is the lamb. And then some of these disciples call him the son of God, the king of Israel, the Christ. All of that to say, you're the deliverer of our people. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're going to set up your kingdom. And Jesus doesn't deny that. It is true. He is going to set up his kingdom. But Jesus himself in that very last verse calls him what? Himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. And I don't know, five weeks ago or whatever it was, Phil preached about the Son of Man from the the latter part of Daniel. And what we find is that the Son of Man is that promised King who will come and He will reign. The heavens will open and He will come down and He will reign forever and He will judge those who don't believe in Him and He will bless those who trust Him and forever and ever He will be on His throne as the people gather around and multitudes serve Him and more multitudes worship Him and everyone will say, He is worthy of our allegiance. And church, I don't know how any other way to tell you, but that's looking upon Jesus. He's the Word of God. He's the Lamb of God. He's the King of Israel. He's the Son of Man. And if that doesn't compel you, I don't know what could compel you. And so I want to call you to follow Him. Follow Him with your Mind and with your heart. I dealt with a person this week who is making bad decisions. And the reason this person is making bad decisions, at least one reason, is because this person is not beholding Christ in their life. Not reading about Christ in the Scriptures. Not praying to Christ in their devotional life. Not following Christ by attending services. And and so therefore, therefore, this person's following after Jesus doesn't look much like following after Jesus. Why? Because following after Jesus is a result of putting your eyes on Jesus and comprehending who He is. If you say, oh yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but you don't know who He is, then you can't be a follower of Jesus. 
And so I want to tell you, follow Him with your mind. Follow Him with your heart. Give your heart to Him every day. Give your mind to Him every day. Study Him and read about Him and pray to Him and set your allegiance toward Him and follow after Him. Follow Him in your relationships. Follow Him in your work. Follow Him with your allegiance. Follow Him in everything that you are and everything that you have. Because if you've seen Him for who He is, then you know He's worthy of everything you've got. And given that, I call you, church, to go and make other disciples of Jesus. If you're not following after Jesus right now, like it's just not your heartbeat to say, you get up in the mornings and say, I'm excited to love Jesus. I'm excited to follow Jesus. I'm excited to pray to you now, Lord. I want, I want, I want, I want to bring you all of my life and all of my decisions and my relationships, and I want to see the glory of Christ manifested in my relationships, in my life, in my decision-making, in how I work and how I demonstrate my character because I want your name to look great. I want your kingdom to be built. Like If that's not your mindset then it probably means you're not following after him. So you've got to check if you've really seen with spiritual eyes who Jesus is. But church, if you've seen with spiritual eyes who Jesus is and your heartbeat is to magnify the greatness of Christ, then you do have one call in your life, and that is to make other disciples. How could you know that Jesus is the Word of God and the Lamb of God and the King of Israel and the Son of Man and know that He's ultimately, the clouds are going to part, He's going to return and judge the earth with all righteousness and those who don't trust in Him go to hell and those who do trust in Him have eternal life and you not tell people about Him? That's, that's just hateful. And So what we've got to do is we've got to orient. There, there has to be an unobstructable pathway from seeing Christ to following Christ to making disciples of Christ. That's what's got to happen in our life if we want to fulfill the calling that John 1, 35 to 51 has on our life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in the, the solemnity of this moment that every Christian, every true Christian will, will be able to, by the power of the Spirit of Christ, appropriate seeing Jesus, following Jesus, and making disciples of Jesus. And I also pray that if there's somebody this morning who has seen Christ with spiritual eyes for the first time, Father, that they will, in this very service, follow Him, and that they will experience new life in Him. I want to invite you to follow Him today. I'm actually going to step off the stage. I'm going to stand off to the side, and if you want to follow Jesus for the first time, then you have that invitation. Jesus said, follow me. You got one option. You can either follow Jesus or you can follow yourself. Following yourself will lead you to hell. Following Christ will lead you to life eternal. The second part of the invitation is if you are a follower of Jesus, but you've lost your way, 
Are you just struggling, honestly? You're trying, to, you're trying to figure out how to follow Jesus and be faithful. How to follow Jesus and be a good wife or a husband or a good dad or a mom or a good son or a daughter or a good worker because you got struggling circumstances. You can also come and talk to me during this final song. You can talk to any other folks here at the church. We'd love to love you and pray with you. This is the deal. If you're struggling to follow Jesus, then gain the help that Jesus has set in place for you to gain before you go out and try to tackle life again this week on your own. That's your invitation today.